Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, with Julieta Kuznir, Nina Serrano, Brenda Illescas, and Edgardo Servano Soto. In tonight's program, we'll hear an interview with Sonia Shaw and Fania Davis, two practitioners with decades of experience working in the field of restorative justice. They'll be talking about healing through alternatives to the criminal justice system. We'll also hear from the Immigrant Youth Coalition about their work and how they're responding to the Obama administration's recent announcement of deportation raids. Listeners will also get a chance to learn about how they can become a part of KPFA's First Voice Apprenticeship Program. All this y mucho más, so stay tuned. Bienvenidos. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Cusnid, and on today's program, we're going to continue our ongoing focus on restorative justice inside and outside of prison walls was our focus last time. We're working with Sonia Shaw, who has been in this field for quite a while, and she's going to facilitate a conversation with Fania Davis. Sonia, why don't you tell us a little bit about Fania's background? Absolutely. This is an introduction to Fania Davis, coming of age in Birmingham, Alabama, during the social fervent of the civil rights era. The murder of two close childhood friends in the 1963 Sunday school bombing crystallized within Fania Davis a passionate commitment to social transformation. For the next decades, she was active in the civil rights, black liberation, women's, prisoners, peace, anti-racial violence, and anti-apartheid movements. After receiving her law degree from UC Berkeley in 1979, Fania practiced for 27 years as a civil rights trial lawyer. But the adversarial nature of the criminal justice system did not sit well with Fania. Since 2003, she has been engaged in a search for healing alternatives to adversarial justice. The search for a healing justice led Fania to restorative justice. She's the founder and director of Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth and rightfully credited with seeding and bringing restorative justice to the Bay Area. Welcome, Fania. Thank you, Sonia. So I guess I would start by asking, um, you've often spoken about how the impact of your childhood and the civil rights era led you to restorative justice. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and your personal journey to restorative justice? Sure. Um, Sonia, as I've said many times before, I have been led to do this work in large part based on my experiences as a child uh, growing up, born and coming of age in Birmingham, Alabama. We call it Birmingham, Birmingham, Alabama, of course, is the formal name. Uh, but it was called Birmingham because of the frequency of bombings uh, directed at churches and individuals who were very active in the civil rights movement at the time. This was the I would say this is all of the 50s and into the early 60s. And I lived atop Dynamite Hill. That was literally the name of my neighborhood. Uh, that's where I was born. That's where I was raised. And it was called that because black families uh, were pushing the color line by moving into this neighborhood that had previously been all white. Coming of age in an environment, you know, where you would go downtown and you couldn't use the bathroom, or if you had a, you could use the bathroom, you had to use the one that was marked colored. You couldn't get anything to eat at the lunch counter. Um, you had to drink colored water, and uh, you couldn't go to the amusement park. When I was a small child, I remember it. Well, why can't I go there? You know, I want to. I want to ride on the merry-go-round. I want to ride on the roller coaster. So all of the indignities, the everyday indignities, uh, living in the South uh, during the era of segregation, it was really a form of apartheid. 
coupled with the racial violence that was ever present. Um, and all of that sort of culminated uh, in the loss of uh, two of my childhood friends in the Birmingham Sunday School bombing, uh, September 1963, uh, Cynthia Wesley and Carol uh, Robinson. And so I left the South with this yearning, this burning and fierce desire to be an agent for social transformation. And uh, went from the civil rights movement uh, to just uh, so many um, movements afterwards, from the Black Panther movement, the Black Nationalist movement, the uh, Black Students movement, the anti-war movement, the uh, socialist movement, the anti-imperialist movement, the anti-apartheid movement, uh, the women's movement, the peace movement, and anti-racial violence movement, and many, many others, and also became a um, civil rights lawyer. When, when I was, I think, 22, just about eight years or less, after I lost my friends in the Birmingham Sunday School bombing, uh, police uh, raided uh, my home in San Diego. I was going to school at UC San Diego. We were working in solidarity with the Black Panthers at that time. And police um, came into our home with uh, guns drawn. Uh, My husband uh, got his gun to defend ourselves, and the cops uh, shot him. I jumped on the back of one of the cops and and I uh, hit his arm, so only one bullet uh, went into my husband's body and, and narrowly escaping uh, through his exiting um, just a few millimeters from his spine. Um, he was rushed to the hospital. I was uh, forced underground, and there was an all-points bulletin uh, against me, violent, armed, and dangerous. And uh, we were finally able to get those charges dropped after multiple attempts. Every time our lawyer would get the charges dropped, the district attorney would would, uh, reinstate them. That experience, and followed by the um, targeting of my sister uh, for execution, really, um, uh, by uh, then-Governor Ronald Reagan and, and President Nixon, All of that led me to where I am today in many ways. I became a trial lawyer after I saw the lawyers working in my sister's case. I was so, you know, impressed by uh, by their, their power, their effectiveness. And so I spent about 30 years being a warrior, an angry warrior, a a warrior filled with rage uh, for justice, fighting in the courtroom, fighting on the streets. Until the mid-90s when I began to feel a sense that, that you know, something needed to change. I, I wasn't feeling right. I was feeling out of balance. And I intuitively knew that I just needed more healing energies, more spiritual energies, and more creative energies in my life. And, and so that led me on this path of healing. Um, and I ended up uh, working with a healer. with several healers all over the world, but with one in particular in South Africa that I apprenticed with. And that was part of a PhD program that I um, was enrolled in at the California Institute of Integral Studies. I got my PhD and ended up finding out about restorative justice. And it was a real epiphany for me because when I heard about this justice that heals, this justice that, inc- that, co- that creates social peace instead of deepening social conflict, this justice that seeks to repair damaged relationships in the wake of crime and wrongdoing instead of damaging them further, I said, oh my gosh, this is, this unites, this integrates the healer, the warrior, and the lawyer in me. I could be all of these things at once. So it was a real pivotal moment for me in my own, in my own personal journey into wholeness and in my journey as a, as a warrior for social transformation. Mm-hmm. Your story is beautiful and is so relevant to um, how restorative justice has come to the Bay Area. There's so much talk about what restorative justice is and isn't. I'm wondering if you can describe a little bit more its principles and how it's practiced. Sure. So um, one of the best ways to describe its principles is, is, well, there are two little exercises that I usually do. One is to tell a story. This is a story about a grandmother who's walking with her two uh, grandchildren in the streets, purse hanging from her arm. A youth comes, knocks her down, 
grabs her purse, runs away. The babies, they're both under 10, are just traumatized and crying and devastated. Uh, The grandmother is on the ground, not moving. It is said that our system goes after the person who caused the harm, first, second, and third. That our system would just kind of run past the grandmother, run over her, run past the children, and go after that, quote, offender. And you would say that restorative justice, on the other hand, would do what you or I or most people would do. We'd first go to check on the grandmother. How is she doing? Does she need medical care? Does she need an ambulance? What are her needs? And then the children, you know, they need some caring. They need to know it's going to be all right. So we'd comfort them. And after that's taken care of, we'd go find the person who caused the harm. And we'd figure out, well, you know, what, what led to this? You know, what's your story, you know? And how do you think this impacted the grandmother and the children? And what do you think needs to be done to make it right with them? So you could say that restorative justice is concerned with not just the person who caused the harm, but with everyone who's impacted. It's concerned about repairing that harm, about addressing the needs and responsibilities. Another way, the second exercise, is to ask three questions. And you've, you've, I'm certain, done this exercise zillions of times. Yes, but our audience hasn't. (laughs) Okay. Maybe you can describe those three questions. So you could say that our current justice system asks three questions. What law or rule was broken? Two, who broke it? Three, what punishment is deserved? So it's concerned about blame and punishment, adjudication and sentencing. And that's really the sum total, pretty much, of what we do in our criminal justice system. We adjudicate, and then we decide what punishment, what law was broken, what, and, and what is the punishment that's deserved. Restorative justice asks a different set of questions. Who was harmed? And what are the needs and responsibilities of all impacted by the harm? And how do all impacted by the harm come together to repair it to the degree possible? So restorative justice is concerned about healing. You could say that ours is a system that harms people who harm people to show that harming people is wrong. So our system replicates harm. I mean, we know from studies that if people are harmed and that harm is not healed, they go on to harm other people or harm harm themselves. So this harming in response to harm sets off an endless cycle of harm. And until it sort of metastasizes and saturates our very existence. And in some ways you could say that that punitive, that fundamentally punitive approach to doing justice is what has bred and spawned the system of mass incarceration, is what has bred and spawned the school to prison pipeline that addiction to punishment in the justice system that we see. And so there are these ways in which our addiction to punishment, um, restorative justice, is a, is a different form, a different an interruption a process. And it takes different forms, correct? It, uh, yes. Whether we're talking about the school's system, the community, mm-hmm. uh, juvenile justice, mm-hmm. Um, or post-incarceration when people come back for re-entry or when people are incarcerated. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how restorative justice for Oakland youth's work and you see that work happening in schools and the community and the juvenile justice system. I think those are the three areas that you all have the most intersection, correct? That's correct. In fact, when Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth uh, was formed in 2005, we did a strategic planning session and we decided that we would have uh, three areas. We we would work in three areas. We would promote uh, restorative justice principles and practices in schools, uh, juvenile justice, and communities. In West Oakland, we started our first school-based pilot at Cole Middle School. Uh, and that began in full 
the full expression of our program, our pilot there, uh, started in 2007. And within less than a year, we saw just amazing results. Uh, Rita Alfred, who was our mutual friend, of course, was the uh, restorative justice school coordinator there. And um, we saw a, an 87% decrease in the suspension rate. It was really amazing because I remember Rita and I were preparing a, a grant uh, to get violence prevention uh, funds from the city of Oakland's um, Measure Y. And we were looking at our data, you know, from the youth that she had worked with at, at Cole Middle, the children she had worked with at Cole Middle School. And I started doing the numbers, and, you know, I'm not great at math. And I got this figure, 87% reduction in suspension rates. I'm saying to myself, this can't be right. So I must have done the calculations three times again. And then I asked somebody who I knew was good in math uh, to do it. And so anyway, th that's just unheard of, an 87% reduction in suspension rates. And of course, this is really important when you talk about interrupting the school-to-prison pipeline. Uh, because we know that uh, when you're suspended once, that you're three times as likely to be incarcerated. You're twice as likely to drop out of school. And if you drop out of school, then you are definitely on a path to prison uh, because 70% of the nation's inmates are high school dropouts. So a huge um, factor in interrupting the school-to-prison pipeline is keeping kids in school. So that's what we did, and we did it successfully. Other uh, positive outcomes included completely eliminating the attrition rates of students, of, of teachers. Teachers didn't find that school a place where they wanted to teach and come back to every year. So every year, we lost so many. But with the restorative justice program, which impacts the whole school, the climate of the school, uh, teachers wanted to teach there. It became a place where teachers wanted to teach and where students wanted to learn. We completely eliminated violence as well. So those outcomes were just pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. So the reduction in violence, the dramatic decrease in suspension, and um, the the lack of attrition, the, the satisfaction of teachers, mm -hmm. I just want to point out is consistent with studies that have been done across the nation in Minnesota and Colorado and Pennsylvania. So it's not an anomaly that it's one school in West Oakland. So Absolutely. can you talk a little bit about the other school, how many schools do you work with and what has the school board done as a result of this work? Sure. Those positive results got the attention of the entire school district. Many other schools were very interested in getting trainings and, and having programs at their schools. Then with some organizing by youth and some uh, lobbying of the uh, superintendent and the school board members, we were able to have a resolution passed adopting restorative justice as official school policy, and that was in 2010. And it was explicitly mentioned that we wanted to use restorative justice to reduce racial disparities as well. At that time, I don't think there was language about the school-to-prison pipeline. Now, of course, the school-to-prison pipeline is a household word, but back yeah. then it wasn't part of the language of the, um, of the resolution. Absolutely. So we're speaking to Fanya Davis, who is the founder and director of Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth commonly known as Arjoy. Um, Fanya, can you tell us a little bit about how restorative justice actually works in schools and what's the impact of the most recent study you've done? Sure, sure. First, let me tell you a few stories um, connected to Cole Middle School. So there we found that the whole culture changed, and that's part of how it works. It's not just a program where you send your you know, misbehaving students, the teachers send them to, to the restorative justice room, and then they're restored and they're sent back to the classroom. No, it's, it's an approach that involves the whole school. In order to completely eliminate violence at Cole Middle School and at other schools where we've had the program, we've needed to get everybody involved, from the teachers to the school security officers to the cafeteria workers to the after-school workers, as well as the principals and vice principals and administrators. So it's a whole school approach. And let me just tell you a little story. There was a boy who was outside about two or three blocks away from uh, Cole Middle School, and he was fighting uh, with another kid who was also a student. And a parent came by, not, a, not the parent of these young children, but the parent happened to n know about our restorative justice program at Cole Middle School. 
So she hauled the two boys into the restorative justice room where she met Rita Alfred. And one of the boys said, we can't fight at school, and now we can't even fight in the neighborhood. That's funny. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Um, And then there were other stories of children coming in from the playgrounds. Miss Alfred, we need a talking piece. We're having some differences. We're having, you know, an argument. And we don't want it to turn into a fight. We we want to talk talk it through in a circle. So uh, children learned how to talk through instead of fight through their differences, which is just huge for a city like Oakland, you know, where homicide is the leading cause of our children, of death. Uh, leading cause of death of our children in, in Oakland. Yeah, It's important to say that we use restorative justice not just after harm has occurred, but to prevent harm in a proactive way, in a prophylactic way, to build community, to build trust, to build a sense of, 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 of uh, belonging, to create a sense of belonging for these youth, and to create a space where children feel that they have a voice that is being heard, where children feel that they are seen, that who they truly are. And that's so important because we find that um, children transform. Children who have had multiple suspensions, like Cameron, with 150 suspensions and about 10 arrests, uh, who was headed, you know, to an early death by by gun violence, who was headed uh, to prison very, very clearly. Uh, That was interrupted when he came to a restorative justice school where he was seen, where he was heard, and where he got a three, graduated with honors, um, and is now working for our joy. And that's the story of many, many other youth. Uh, so that's how it works on sort of psychological and relational and emotional levels. Um, youth uh, can, when they are seen, then they can see who they are. And I always talk about this um, um, South African greeting, Sawubona, uh, you know, I see you. That's a traditional way of greeting one another in the marketplace on the road. I see you. I see who you are. I see your spirit. I see your ancestors. I see the gift that you are to the world. So in some ways, it's very simple. This is we're creating spaces where our children can be seen and where teachers can be seen as well. Absolutely. And it feels like, you know, instrumentally at the heart of that is this thing we call circle process, right? Yes, Very yes. simple um, egalitarian process of people being yes. able to be seen and heard and speak yes. and pass a talking piece around. Yeah, so the talking piece allows a 12-year-old to feel that her voice is heard and that her voice is just as important as the voice of the presiding juvenile judge who's also in the circle. And we do have circles. We have had circles with judges, with youth and judges, and with youth and the mayor, and with youth and law enforcement. And invariably, they end those circles because of the way that those spaces are created, because of the use of the talking piece. Uh, they end up, you know, saying at the end of those circles, "I feel heard." You know, I feel like you know that you know you you've seen me. What are the origins of the circle process? indigenous origins. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was so uh, drawn to restorative justice. Having spent that time with healers all over the world, and especially in Africa, I immediately saw the indigenous uh, roots of restorative justice. And that's what really resonated with me so much. In indigenous cultures, our interrelatedness is affirmed in so many ways, not our disconnection and our separation as in our culture. Um, so yes, restorative justice is based on indigenous uh, ways of being present to one another in ways that bring healing and wholeness instead of in ways that bring uh, discord and devastation. And It would probably be difficult for people to believe that you can bring judges and teachers and law enforcement and youth and everyone in a room together and that they actually um, discuss things, listen to each other and come up with shared outcomes. But it sounds like that's really what restorative justice does. Yes, it does. And not only that, Sonia, but as as you know, unlikely, what we call unlikely of friends are made. And that's a, a gross understatement. What I'm talking about is that in restorative practice of victim offender dialogue, and in particular in cases of severe violence, you have the survivors of um, family members who have been killed say a a child has been killed, and the family of that child comes together with the killer of that child. 
uh, and a very carefully prepared encounter process. And amazing things happen. I mean, they become friends, and they're bonded for life. And in many cases, we see families who uh, then vouch for the, their child's killer on when it's time for the person to be paroled. Or in the Amy Bill case involving the young woman who was killed in South Africa, where the surviving family has given money to the killers uh, to create homes for their families and is speaking all over the world. Those kinds of things happen in circles, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, Fania Davis of Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth, yes. I know that there's some initial thinking that you're doing with some others about a truth and reconciliation restorative process in the United States, particularly around harms against the African-American and indigenous communities. What is truth and reconciliation and what, what would you like to see happen? Um, well, n- restorative justice can heal harm, can repair damage to relationships, can bring about reconciliation, even between persons uh, who you would think would never want to see one another, much less um, be reconciled with one another. Uh, So restorative justice can, we know, uh, repair damage to relationships in interpersonal uh, contexts where an assault occurs, you know, um, where um, any sort of crime occurs, including crimes of severe violence. So the question is whether restorative justice can be used to repair damage that has been done by structural harm or by historical harm. And the answer is yes. Restorative justice is not just meant to repair harm in interpersonal Context, although most people think of it in connection with those kinds of circumstances. But in fact, restorative justice has been used to um, uh, heal the wounds of mass harm, mass social conflict, uh, conflict uh, within countries and between uh, ethnic groups, um, such as in Rwanda. Uh, and we all also know, of course, about the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa that occurred under the tutelage of Nelson Mandela and, um, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. A restorative justice process was used there to begin to repair the damage done, uh, at least on psychosocial levels, by apartheid. And so we have some precedents. And um, I'm hoping that we can begin to launch a restorative justice based truth and recon- restorative justice based uh, truth and reconciliation movement that will begin to repair a harm on structural level- levels and i think that you know as someone who is a longtime warrior for social justice it's important for me that we uh, have our demands met around economic e- equality, educational equality, political in- uh, equality, uh, housing equality. All of these demands for structural change are really uh, key. Uh, and we've been pressing for these forever and ever and ever, you know, probably since the, since the time of slavery. But what we have not been intentional about pressing for is repairing the damage to relationships, is healing relationships between entire communities, especially between African Americans and whites. And so a restorative justice process would holistically uh, address these issues. And let me me be more specific. You could say in many ways that the violence that we're seeing today is a contemporary expression of uh, racial harm that has been going on since the birth of this slave nation. You could say that, or it's true, that uh, after slavery was ended, it it didn't really end. It it just morphed into something else. It morphed into lynching. It morphed into sharecropping. And then it morphed into convict leasing. And today... um, and into Jim Crow, of course. And today it's morphed into mass incarceration and deadly police practices. And it's like a child who has a trauma at a very early age. If that trauma is never really discussed and, and faced and, and courageously confronted and processed and healed, then that 
trauma is going to perpetually reenact itself. It's going to keep coming back in different guises, perhaps, but the content, will, the essence will remain the same. So I think we need a process that will bring justice and healing. And I think uh, a restorative justice, truth and reconciliation process is the best hope to begin to really uh, interrupt these cycles of uh, racial trauma and finally put the past behind us. Thank you, mm-hmm. Fania. Um, you're listening to Fania Davis, who is the executive director and founder of Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth. And this is a series. Uh, we had a conversation about a month and a half ago with Troy Williams, also about restorative justice and alternatives to incarceration. And uh, just to end, Fania, can you tell us how we can learn more about restorative justice? Uh, sure. Uh, there is a wonderful website called um, restorativejustice.org. Uh, There is a website, I'm not remembering the name, but you can Google the name, the National Association of Community and Restorative Justice. There's, of course, the RJOY website. That's www.rjoyoakland, r-j-o-y-oakland.org. There is also the website of the Oakland Unified School District. Um, And you can call us... Uh, our joy at 510-931-7569. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sonia. listening to La Raza Chronicles on KPFA 94.1. I'm Edgardo Servano Soto. This past Christmas, the Obama administration announced an additional round of deportations. Since January 1st, more than 121 people, the majority women and children from Central America, were detained. The deportation round set off protests nationwide, including in San Francisco and Los Angeles. I am joined by Marcela Hernandez, an organizing coordinator for the Immigrant Youth Coalition. Thank you, Marcela, for joining us on La Raza Chronicles. Yeah, thank you for inviting us. So, Marcela, before we begin, for those who may not know of the Immigrant Youth Coalition, tell us about the coalition and the work you do as a coordinator. Yes, so the Immigrant Youth Coalition is a coalition of undocumented youth and family-led groups across California. We have uh, six chapters. One of them is in the Bay. We have a couple of them in Southern California, including Los Angeles, Santa Ana, San Diego Valley, San Fernando Valley. Specifically, my job is the Deportation and Detention Defense Coordinator. So I train different youth and community members on how to try to fight their deportation or advocate to get out of detention, but also collaborate with other groups and coalitions to pass more pro-immigrant legislation and try to defeat anti-immigrant legislation. So our focus is predominantly issues that affect undocumented immigrants that are in deportation proceedings or in detention. The news about the additional round of deportation surprised everyone, I think, specifically because it happened during the holiday season. Tell us about the impact of these recent deportation raids to the undocumented community. Yes, this definitely had a very harmful impact in a lot of our community. Specifically for us, it was a very big attack from the Obama administration because they were openly saying, I was openly saying, we're going to go out in the communities and hunt down children and women that have come to the United States as refuge from the violence that is happening in Central America. You know, that was really outraging that there have opened said we're going to go out tearing our mothers and children apart from their homes. That, you know, 
we already know a lot of us have been organizing for years now because Obama has had the highest levels of deportation than any other president. And now probably more than 2.5 million deportations. And so for us, that they were openly announcing this was very scary to our communities and, and made them so very afraid. And there's still a lot of fear in our communities of the police, of ICE agents. We even heard in a lot of towns, a lot of children didn't even go to school, right, after those were announced when school was about to start. They didn't because they were afraid that ICE was going to go out to look for them. There were manifestations in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Marcela, can you tell us more about how did the Immigrant Youth Coalition and other partner organizations react to the raids? Once we heard about the news through the media, through other sources, we quickly got on a call uh, right away. And actually before the actions, a lot of us were talking about how do we ask support any families in California that might be targeted. As of now, we haven't really heard of any uh, raids that specifically target Central American mothers and children here in California, but we did hear about Georgia, Texas, right? So for us, it was not only important to be able to be ready to provide information and support for families that were were potentially going to be targeted, but also make a strong statement through press conferences, through actions, through marches, that this was something we were not going to accept in California, that we were not going to accept that I goes out to our communities and risk families apart and individuals apart. We know that the race has been happening since last year, specifically targeting people with previous deportation orders or folks that had previous uh, encounters with the police. And we have taken a stance against those rates that happened uh, last year, uh, towards the end of the year, and we were also going to take strong stance against the race that the administration announced. On social media, hundreds of posts about rumored detention sites in Oakland, Fremont, and Hayward here in the Bay Area were very prominent. What are tips that you can tell us if ICE comes to your door? What rights do undocumented immigrants have when confronted by ICE? So the one thing that we want to stress is that undocumented community members and non-citizens, right, because they're also targeting residents, people with any kind of permanent status, that they do have rights. They do have the right to not opening the door if the police or I uh, does not have an order that has the address, the name of the person they're looking for, and is signed by a judge. A lot of the times what we're seeing is that I, or they say there's a police, that they're trying to look for somebody different. Uh, They get a random name out. And sometimes people open the door because they want to actually prove that that person is not there. But no, like we've seen that I is lying to people just to get in the door. And anybody that does not have documentation can be taken away. We even had instances where citizens were taken to detention centers. So I would just say to remain silent and not opening the door if they don't have an order with the name of the person, the actual address, and that is signed by a judge. That's really important that it's signed by a judge. They don't have to open the door. If the police or ICE goes inside, they have the right to remain silent. That they're taken away to not sign anything without consulting an attorney. That the only thing that they need to disclose is their name. So those are some of the basic tips that we give out to folks. And we do have a hotline that we open statewide that people can call to report any raids or any detentions or if somebody's put in deportation proceedings. And that's 1-844-878-7801. That line is being checked daily. And we either have somebody answer or call back within 24 hours to give information to people about their basic rights and any legal resources that are low cost or pro bono around their area. And from these recent deportation raids, Marcela, has Immigrant Youth Coalition been getting any responses from callers? Yes, we actually had a couple of calls 
already of just the usual activities that I assist to in the male community. There's also let's remember that ICE is always out there uh, looking to detain, to deport community members, sadly. That's, that's the reality, and that's why we're, we're fighting against those policies, right? Um, and we're fighting against how ICE operates and just how they come to our community. And, yeah, we have been getting calls. Given the day of the action, there was actually a Border Patrol agent that broke the mother's window to get her out of her car when her children were there. And one of the teenagers was able to film this. So right now, you know, we're following up with the family and other families that have just been targeted, maybe not as massively as the ones in Georgia or in other parts of the country, and giving them information about their rights and how they can appeal their deportation proceedings. So that's the kind of work we've been doing. And, yeah, definitely we've been getting some calls. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles on KPFA 94.1, and we are joined by Marcela Hernandez, an organizing coordinator for the Immigrant Youth Coalition. Last year, community organizers in San Francisco stopped the expansion of a San Francisco County jail, and in early February, residents from Santa Ana organized against the expansion of a city jail. Can you talk about what is the connection between jail expansions and detentions? Yeah, definitely, and uh, a lot of our organizers in San Francisco were supportive of that fight, and I was at the actual meeting in Santa Ana testifying against the expansion of an ICE contract with the Santa Ana City Jail. So definitely right now we're seeing that actually detention centers are part of the prison industrial complex because right now the administration is heavily focusing on anybody that has had any contact with the police and then ended up in jail, right, that is a non-citizen. The problem with that is that we see that in communities of color, there's a lot of hyper-policing, there's a lot of criminalization of communities of color, gang injunctions that, you know, people of color that include undocumented people into jail, which is a very unfair system, right? The criminal justice system, we've seen that there's been a big push for that reform, but then it doesn't include undocumented people because once they have a negative contact with the police, they end up in some kind of police station in jail, then those jails collaborate and that police department sometimes collaborates with ICE, with immigration, and they put those people again in detention center or in deportation proceedings. So what we're seeing right now under a new program that's called PEPCOM, that came at the same time as DAPA, as for for parents and arrivals, that this program is uh, basically allowing jails and sheriff's departments to share the information of when somebody's going to be released out of jail so that ICE can be waiting for them outside and they be taken to a detention center. And for us, that's just a violation of due process. The person thinks they're going to be free, they're going to reunite with their family, they can maybe go to a rehabilitation program, and instead they're being taken to another jail to a detention center or put in deportation proceedings. So it's definitely connected because sometimes jails funnel people to detention centers that a lot of them are for profit, right? Private companies are getting money out of the people being detained. 2016 is a presidential election year where it's anticipated that people of color and young voters will be a significant voting bloc. Recently, the Pew Research Center released a study declaring that among the record 27.3 million Latinos who are eligible voters in 2016, 44% of them are young voters born after 1980. Marcela, from your perspective, how do you think young Latinos will impact the presidential election 2016, specifically around immigration reform? For us, we focus a lot on non-citizens, so the the people that actually don't have that accessibility to vote. I do encourage, though, for those Latinos and Latinas that can vote, for them to know that it's more than voting and actually organizing in their local communities, that something's going to make a stronger impact, because if we don't have organized communities here around, 
you know, we're not going to be able to push those politicians that people elect into office to be accountable to the immigrant community, to the Latina, to the Latino community. So it's really important for young Latinas and Latinos that are able to vote to understand that, it's, you know, it goes beyond a vote because that's what we thought with Obama, right? Everybody had really high hopes, and it actually took the mobilizing of undocumented youth, of undocumented families, to push for him to do DACA, DAPA, right? And even to, you know, still pushing for him to say that he's going to stop the deportations that are affecting a lot of our communities. So I would really encourage folks that it's more than a board, it's more, you know, that, that one day is actually going to their communities and organizing and sharing information that's going to make the, the difference. How can listeners connect to the Immigrant Youth Coalition and stay up to date? Yes, uh, we have a website, www.iyc, so that's T-H-E-I-Y-C.org. Um, there, there's a sign-up for our mailing list, and whenever there's petitions, there's actions, there's any kind of workshop that we give out to the community, they can, you know, find out about it. We also have a Facebook we have a Twitter account, um, and we're part of bigger coalitions, such as the ISAT of San Francisco Coalition, ISAT of LA Coalition, and statewide, right, uh, there's a lot of organizations fighting against the deportations, the detentions, and the unjust policies that exist locally and also statewide and nationally. So we do invite folks to follow us on Facebook, sign up to our List so they can keep updated on all of this. I think very important uh, things that are affecting our community. Thank you, Marcela, for joining us on La Raza Chronicles. Thank you for your time.
You're listening to La Raza Chronicles. This is Julieta Kuznir. I have with me here in the studio Silvia Torres. You may have heard her voice. She's been putting together some community calendars. She's been working with the apprenticeship program. Silvia is here to talk to us about that program. Silvia, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Julieta, for having me in, in your program. Well, I decided to join the apprenticeship program because there are a lot of topics, subjects, and concerns that are not expressed in the regular media. I'm originally from Puerto Rico, and there's a lot that is happening right now in Puerto Rico, and usually you don't get to hear those news on regular media. So if people have any concerns or things that they would like to hear on the news and have a voice, the apprenticeship program of KPFA is a good way of giving people a voice. I'm here to invite people in the audience who feel like the concerns of their communities are not being voiced on the regular media. And KPFA have a very good program. It's the apprenticeship program in which the goal is to have women and minorities learn and gain all the skills that people need in order to work in a radio station that goes from producing, recording, editing, mixing, and working on the boards. So, Silvia, so tell us, um, where do people find out more about this program? And also, when is the deadline to apply? People can find the application on KPFA website. It's uh, apprentice at kpfa.org. Or people can stop by the station, and we have an office here. There's an apprentice office where people can also get the application. And the deadline for submitting the application is coming up pretty close. So if people are interested, I really urge them to come by or get into the website. The deadline is February 12, 2016. Mujercita mía, no mires para atrás, que en el fondo de las sopes que se encuentra la verdad y se me ve el aliento, se me ve el hablar, se me va la vida si tú te vas. Griega de mi vida, aunque no seas mía, me enseñaste tú. Alma en las esquinas griega de mi vida, aunque no seas mía, me enseñaste tu alma en las esquinas, en las esquinas, en las esquinas. Listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Brenda Yescas, and this is a calendar of Bay Area events and happenings for this week. For tonight, February 9th, come celebrate Fat Tuesday with Mangrove Express, Sambache, Maracatu Pacifico, and more at the Elbow Room in San Francisco, 647 Valencia Street. Starts at 9 p.m. Elbow.com for more information. For Saturday, February 13th, the 39th annual Corazón del Barrio Open House. Activities include printmaking workshops, dance classes led by in-house teaching artists, all-day gallery access to view Mexicanos al Grito de la Guerra, We Didn't Cross the Borders, The Borders Crossed Us exhibition, interactive entertainment featuring live music and dance, as well as refreshments and drinks at the Mission Cultural Center for the Arts, 
2868 Mission Street in San Francisco. Starts at 12 and ends at 4.30 p.m. MissionCulturalCenter.org For Saturday, February 13th, come see Grammy-nominated Nicaraguan band La Cuneta Son Machin, featuring the Bay Area's own Deuce Eclipse and Sol Tron at the Great American Music Hall. 859 O'Farrell Street in San Francisco. Starts at 8 p.m. SlimsPresents.com For Saturday, February 13th, the Rhythm Cafe, Oakland's all-star percussion ensemble, welcomes one of California's foremost creative percussionists, multi-Grammy nominee John Santos, for a dizzying early evening display of drum magic at La Estreita Cafe, 446 East 12th Street in Oakland, from 6 to 8 p.m. Also for Saturday, February 13th, La Cumbia del Amor, a benefit for Danza Azteca Cuauhtonal, featuring DJ Olin and live cumbia from Los Malos de la Cumbia and La Nueva Silueta at Amor Eterno Arte, 1227 18th Avenue in Oakland, 7 to 11 p.m., amoreternoarte.com. For Sunday, February 14th, Bate Boricua, the Bomba y Plena Workshop, resumes its afternoon Puerto Rican music and dance jam session. Open to all. Join us for the beautiful afternoon creating music and always great vibes. Vengan a bailar, a cantar, tocar y gozar con nosotros. El La Peña Cultural Center, 3105 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley, 4 to 7 p.m. LaPeña.org. For Sunday, February 14th, the project Social Fabric will be presenting a small exhibition about the Mexican Rebozo, an emblematic piece that fuses techniques, cultures, time, and ancestral knowledge interlocked like a code within woven fibers. The exhibition will have a presentation of different techniques and styles of Mexican Rebozos to teach us how to identify its origin and discontinue economic spending on cheap global knockoffs from industrial manufacturers at the Red Poppy Art House. 2698 Folsom Street in San Francisco, 1 to 6 p.m., redpoppyarthouse.org. Comedian Bill Santiago returns to the Bay Area in his one-man show. Comedian Bill Santiago returns to the Bay Area in his one-man show at La Peña Cultural Center. There will be only two performances, Friday, February 26th, and Saturday, February 27th. Go to lapeña.org for more information. And this has been a calendar of events, Musica y Arte for the San Francisco Bay Area. To add your event to our list, send us your email at larazachronicles at kpfa.org. And for more information on these events, and for more information on these events or our show, visit us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash larazachronicles. Feliz noches! You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles Crónicas de la Raza on KPFA 94.1 FM community-powered radio. If you'd like to hear this program again or share it with others, check us out on soundcloud.com. Just search for La Raza Chronicles. And of course, make sure to like us on Facebook to receive regular updates on news, arts, and culture desde el mundo latino. And we always like to hear from our listeners to get new ideas for shows, so email us at larasachronicles.org. Stay tuned next Tuesday at 7 p.m. for more of La Raza Chronicles Crónicas de la Raza. Hasta la próxima. Buenas noches.